Love, Janessa, a brand new true crime podcast from the BBC World Service and CBC Podcasts. It's a story about love, deceit and survival, and it's available now. Find out more at the end of this podcast. This is World Business Report from the BBC World Service. Hello, I'm Roger Hearing. On the programme today, the key earnings are out for the world's biggest tech companies. It's a beat on estimates for Amazon, but gloomier news for Apple and Google's parent Alphabet. Also, the European Central Bank and the Bank of England follow the Fed in hiking interest rates. We look at the problem of getting petrol in Nigeria. And Beyoncé launches her Renaissance mega tour, likely to earn her more than $250 million. Now, three of the world's biggest and richest companies, the tech giants Apple, Amazon and Google Parent Alphabet, have just announced their latest earnings. Good news for Amazon. Sales rose to $149.2 billion in the fourth quarter, beating expectations. But elsewhere, it was gloom. Alphabet fell short on its quarterly earnings and Apple's sales fell 5% in the final three months of last year to $117.2 billion. Well, joining me from San Francisco is the Washington Post tech reporter, Herod Devink. Uh, Herod, thanks so much for being with us. Um, I suppose let's start off with Apple. I mean, it's the first revenue decline since 2019. What's going on? Yeah, so with Apple, I mean, the most important product is their iPhone. It's, you know, the most successful tech product in history, arguably. And usually they do great. This company has sort of been able to avoid doing the layoffs that other giant tech companies have done in the last few weeks and months. But, you know, they are quite dependent on things like China's economy, where they sell millions and millions of iPhones every year. And so with all the ups and downs going on with COVID disruptions to their supply chain there in China, where all these iPhones are made, they were not able to sell as many in the last uh, quarter, which is really important over the holiday season, that's when a lot of people are upgrading their phones, then they usually do. And that's why you have that decline in revenue for Apple. So they're saying it's, it's entirely out of their hands. It's just the way that things are outside. But is that really true? I mean, there's a little bit of dissatisfaction under the surface, perhaps a feeling that some of the mojo quite isn't quite there. Perhaps. I mean, it's difficult with Apple, you know, covering this company for many years now. People have sort of said that for a long time. You know, when was the last time Apple invented a brand new product that was truly exciting and innovative? It's just the same iPhone year after year after year. And if you look at the changes that they make, it's starting to become a little bit difficult to distinguish between, you know, last year's model from this year's model. So I do think that a lot of people who maybe were used to upgrading, buying, you know, brand new thousand dollar phones every year, or every two years are now holding off, maybe deciding to just buy every three years. And that, of course, uh, you know, causes problems and, and, and impacts their revenue. But, you know, Apple, uh, among all the tech companies, is the one that I would least be likely to count out because they've been able to just continue growing, to continue to, to convince people to buy iPhones and also to find new ways of charging them money for cloud storage. You know, all the, the photos that you take on your phone, they're now, now able to charge you for storing that. And so they've been pretty clever in being able to continue to grow their revenue year after year. Well, talk about talking about monetizing the cloud, I suppose, naturally brings us to uh, to Alphabet, um, Google's parent company, and there they fell short on quarterly earnings. I mean, they clearly have made a big play for this whole cloud thing. But what else is going on? 
Yeah, so Google has definitely invested a lot in cloud storage, cloud services. They're still quite a ways behind Amazon and Microsoft when it comes to that business. And so for Google, the vast majority of the revenue still comes from advertising. It comes from ads that you see on YouTube, ads that you see when you make a Google search. And, uh, you know, regardless of how innovative that company is, I mean, the vast majority, over 80% of the revenue is still from advertising. And so as the economy is sort of coming out of this, this period of a lot of government spending, a lot of government stimulus during the pandemic, you know, businesses large and small are sort of pairing back. They're saying, well, there's some economic uncertainty. We're not sure if there's going to be a recession in the U.S. or a recession globally. So they're deciding, you know, the first thing you cut is your advertising budget. And that impacts um, Google quite directly. And so their revenue grew very rapidly during the pandemic as so much of the world moved to the Internet. A lot more people were shopping online. A lot more people were spending their recreation time online. But yeah. compared to that giant revenue, it's a lot slower now. And briefly, if you would, uh, Herit, uh, I suppose Amazon, we should turn to them. They're the ones who've got the, the, the good news, really. Um, sales risen, beat expectations. Briefly, what's going on? Yeah, I mean, Amazon, they did beat some expectations, but also it's, I would say, you know, it's, it's a mixed picture. And I think the main, the big takeaway here is that, you know, these companies are giant. They have been for years, but they're not able to grow at these giant rates, 15, 20% year after year that they were able to over the last decade. And I think, you know, a lot of the, the status quo for just expecting these companies to be able to kind of make money more and more each year, I, I think. That's over for now. Yeah, a change in times. Uh, interesting moment. Well, thanks so much for going through that with us. Herit Devink, the Washington Post tech reporter, speaking to us from San Francisco. Well, just 24 hours after the Fed raised US interest rates, the Bank of England and the European Central Bank followed suit, but both raised by half of 1%. The Fed had only raised a quarter. Well, it all shows the groupthink, I guess, of central banks. Taming inflation, of course, is the object, but they all face the same risks, too, of creating or worsening a recession. Well, I've been speaking to someone who knows all about these debates. He's Vito Constancio. He served as vice president of the European Central Bank from 2010 to 2018, and before that, as governor of the Bank of Portugal. So does he think the ECB is getting interest rates right? The ECB does not follow uh, the Fed in everything. Every central bank around the world in advanced economies and also emerging economies, they've been increasing rates because there is worldwide inflation. So they are doing the same because they all face uh, inflation, but not in the same way, not in the same way, because there, there are huge differences in the inflation process in the euro area and in the US. Perhaps the more important one is that throughout 22, one can calculate that the contribution of services and uh, non-energy industrial goods, what is, uh, say, part of uh, what some uh, call the core inflation, services plus uh, those non-energy industrial goods, that those two sectors contributed to total inflation in the U.S. by two-thirds of the inflation verified in the U.S., whereas they contributed in the euro area only with one-third. It's a huge difference that comes from the fact that services in the U.S. represent 61% 
of the total CPI basket of items, whereas in Europe they represent 40.7 only, and that wages, which contribute a lot to inflation in services, have been increasing by more than two percentage points in the US than in the euro area. So these numbers portray a big difference between the two inflation processes. Uh, and uh, what I uh, uh, also tweeted uh, a while ago was that uh, the ECB is talking, in my view, too much about core inflation and even about wages. The numbers I just uh, uh, mentioned show that services and wages have not been a so significant driver of inflation as they have been in the US. And uh, core inflation is not well measured just by deducting energy and food from total inflation, because what remains are services and those uh, industrial goods. Uh, uh, but in those services and, not, uh, and industrial goods, the cost of energy and food for many services also continue to have an impact. So those two items are not core. Core mm -hmm. is something which is more restricted. And by the way, uh, the Fed has uh, two different measures. Mm -hmm. The ECB recently published also a different measure that uh, showed the number of 4% and not the 5.2 that uh, is being uh, talked about. And by the way, the objective of, of uh, inflation in uh, the euro area is headline inflation, total inflation. We looked into core inflation when uh, the monetary union was created, and we saw at the time that the core inflation in Europe was not a good, reliable predictor of future total inflation, contrary to what happened in the U.S., so they can rely, perhaps, in that relationship. We cannot rely in such a relationship uh, historically uh, in, uh, in Europe. Yeah. So I am afraid that by trying to make uh, so-called core inflation the actual target uh, mm. of policy, uh, then policy can become indeed uh, too much restricted. Vito Constancio there. Well, let's have a look at how the markets reacted. We'll have been a lot of news uh, today, uh, really, um, uh, in Wall Street particularly. Let's talk now to Kerry Lee, Professor of Economics at Columbia University. Kerry, thanks for being with us. Well, first of all, I mean, the tech news, obviously the main earnings came after the end uh, of trading, but, uh, Met, but Meta had had some, some interesting times as well because of perhaps a feeling that was getting a bit stronger. Oh, absolutely. Uh, this was a... Uh a high flyer that had been discarded somewhat last year, and we'd accused it of spending too much money on things that weren't panning out. And it looks like not only maybe those thing, new things are panning out in, in the Medi universe, but also advertising uh, picked up as well. So uh, it was like happy days are here again, and the tech dinosaurs are ruling the earth, at least today. But the after, after trading, uh, after obviously the, the earnings had come out, main markets had closed, did you get a sense of how the markets were going to respond to Amazon, Apple, and indeed, uh, and indeed Alphabet putting out these kind of fairly mixed pictures? I think after the great news from Meta, you'll probably get a little payback uh, tomorrow when they can actually uh, trade because as 
a lot of our listeners know uh, the tech-heavy NASDAQ was up over 3% today, so maybe you'll take some profits on Friday. Perhaps you might not get – you might get run over by – the employment report, but I think people are probably going to probably do a little selling, at least in tech land. Well, mentioning employment, as you did there, uh, brings us neatly to that. I mean, what, what what is everyone expecting? Fascinating article, actually, in the Wall Street Journal today, saying that actually perhaps the, the jobs market's not as tight as it was, that bosses are back in charge of hiring and firing. How, how is everyone seeing it? Well, the market is still very tight, but the expectation based on a a survey that was uh, released earlier this week suggests the number might be as low as 100,000, which is still a pretty good number by pre-COVID standards, but people would think is uh, barely rising. So I think the market's looking for some slowdown. If they do, I think that even though people may be worried about tech have moved too much last night, you'll probably get a buyer's frenzy thinking that the Fed has already admitted publicly that uh, the disinflation process is in train. And even though we're going to hold rates up for a while, the market doesn't believe them. And so if you get a weakish payroll number, I think the market will say the Fed will have to uh, cut rates by the end of the year, even though uh, they don't want to. Now, it's an interesting moment, I suppose, to, to kind of take the temperature of, of of investors out there and how are they feeling about all this overall? Because we've had a little bit of the Fed decision from yesterday to, to filter down. And we've also, of course, seen the moves by the ECB and the Bank of England. Uh, what sense do you get about how people are feeling in optimism or otherwise really today? Well, I think they are feeling more optimistic that the central banks have basically said the inflation has peaked and they know that that could lead to good things down the road. So I think they're feeling more comfortable. Uh, economists like myself are a little little more concerned than the market is about the inflation and growth story. But you can't help but realize that the numbers have been more constructive to the soft landing, at least in the last couple of months, than they were in the previous couple of months. So the, it's turned towards the market's uh, way, at least a little bit. But I'm sensing you said economists like me are, are a little bit more skeptical. So, I mean, what is your feeling about what's going to happen? Well, we've been taught uh, through hard experience that inflation tends to be more uh, 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 sticky both on the low side and the high side. Now it's been high, it'll tend to stay high. And then the other thing that's going on is that the market is fighting the Fed, and the more the market fights the Fed and wins, mm-hmm. the market, will, the Fed will say, well, gee, do we get to our goals? We may have to lean against the market and have to have hike rates more to offset the uh, uh, loosening that's being done by yeah. the marketplace. Yes, an interesting moment. And thanks very much for your insights into that, Kerry. Kerry Leahy there of Columbia University. Now, while oil and gas companies, of course, have been reporting record profits, Shell particularly, of course, in the last uh, 24 hours, some people are struggling to fill their cars because there are fuel shortages in Nigeria. Drivers are queuing overnight to fill up. Fuel costs have increased over the last few months. Prices on the black market have doubled. Millions rely on petrol, of course, not just for transportation, but also for generators to power their homes and businesses. Well, Yamisi Adegoki reports now from outside a petrol station in Lagos. It's just gone five o'clock in the morning here in Lagos and while millions of people are just getting ready to start their day, others have been up for hours queuing for petrol. I'm here since 11.30 yesterday. But now this is 5 a.m. I don't even sure maybe they will still share the fuel or not. I came here as early as five minutes after 3 a.m. this morning, hoping I'll be the first to be on the line. When I got here, I was surprised to see myself, number 18. There are about 70 cars in this queue, and the filling station isn't even open yet. 
the clear sign that the fuel scarcity that has gripped the country for the last couple of months has no signs of easing up. It's been a really tough time for many Nigerians. I slept here. There's no other way, so I have to do it. Are you confident that this station will sell petrol yeah, to you? We don't even know that. Maybe they will sell or not. We just kill. I wonder how in a man of my age, 72 years, will come and, and, and kill up for fuel by 4.30 a.m. in the morning. It's unfortunate. This is a country with low power supply, so millions of people rely on generators to run their households and businesses. In addition, transportation costs have skyrocketed. If that wasn't bad enough, fuel prices across the country are also fluctuating. The official pump price is 170 naira per litre, but we've been getting reports that people are paying anywhere between 185 naira per litre up to 400 naira per litre. There's no money, there's nothing. This first shortage has caused problems. We spend less time at home with our families. We have no money to feed. There are no jobs, nothing. What will happen if you don't get fuel at this station? I'll go look for an alternative. That is black market. So I blame the government for it. Now, what's the government saying about this? According to them, they haven't officially raised the price and it should still be available at 170 naira per litre. They also say that there are enough petroleum products to meet the demands of the people. Instead, they lay the blame at the feet of the independent oil marketers who are in charge of selling and distributing the product. In turn, the marketers blame the rising cost of the dollar and the high cost of transporting petroleum across the country. Well, whoever's to blame, it's Nigerians like this that are paying the price. Yemisi Adegoke reporting there from Lagos. Now let's hear about some of the other big stories across the world today in the business arena. Barbara George has joined us here. So Barbara, uh, first a story from Pakistan. Yes, so Pakistan's central bank says its foreign currency reserve has dropped to nearly $3.1 billion. Analysts are basically saying that this is barely enough to cover three weeks of imports. In a statement, the bank said the drop in reserves was due to like external debt repayments and the country's currency, the rupee, has depreciated by about 15% against the dollar in the past few weeks after a price cap was actually removed. Um, industries are complaining that they are not able to import enough material and machinery as they are struggling to get required dollars from the banks. Wheat flour prices have almost doubled in the past year and there are long queues outside shops um, selling subsidised flour as well. And the opposition, opposition leader Imran Khan, who's calling for an early election, has already warned that his country could slide into Sri Lanka-like situation. Well, let's go now to the automotive industry. Um, there's a sort of revamp of the alliance between Renault and Nissan. Yeah, so French automaker Renault um, will slash its stake in Japanese partner Nissan as part of a deal rebalancing the rocky alliance between the two companies. Uh, the deal will also see Nissan take a stake in Renault's new electric vehicle venture, Ampere, and the agreement comes after months of painstaking negotiations and repeated delays as the two firms actually start to reset their decade-old alliance.
alliance after years of tension. And finally, Australia, the face of King Charles III, not featuring on the country's next $5 notes. Give us that. I know, right? So the note currency um, currently have the portrait of the late Elizabeth II. But for the new design, the Reserve Bank of Australia says it will look to honour the culture and history of Indigenous Mm. people instead. So following the Queen's debt last year, debates about Australia's future... um, it's, I've broken out. It's yeah. a big thing, isn't it? It is a big thing. Barbara, thanks very much. Barbara George there. Now, an antidote to interest rates and petrol prices. Beyonce, of course, with three of her most famous songs, Single Ladies, Formation, Crazy in Love. She's a global sensation, one of the world's most famous and recognisable performers and one of the richest. And Queen Bey has just announced her latest tour, Renaissance, it's called. Billboard magazine reckons she can make more than $275 million from this tour alone. 41 shows in 10 countries from May to September. Well, her last solo tour in 2016, which was actually also her first grossed $256 million. So how do the numbers stack up with a music phenomenon like this? Well, I spoke to Eric Frankenberg. He's Senior Charts and Data Analyst at Billboard. She announced the Renaissance World Tour yesterday and it had 41 shows. It was 15 in Europe and 26 in North America. Already today, she's added seven more dates. Uh, You know, per Live Nation, demand exceeds the number of available tickets by 800% just based on registrations for the pre-sales. And this tour, I mean, it's the first one she's done solo since the Formation Tour, I think, which is in 2016. And this is likely to to beat that record, isn't it? Definitely. Um, Yeah, I mean, she's proven consistently that she can sell out in stadiums by herself on the formation tour uh in 2016 and then again in 2018 when she was on tour with jay-z uh when they did the on the run 2 tour so she can definitely sell the tickets and since then ticket pricing has changed so much that she's you know it's almost a sure thing that this will earn more money than the formation tour yeah and i mean do we know the numbers the actual numbers of tickets she's likely to sell well, her last couple tours did over two million. So, at this point, she's uh, she's scheduled to play just as many shows as she did on the Formation tour. Um, so she's probably going to be in the same realm because she was selling out stadiums then. She can't really sell more than sold out. So she's headed for something in the two point two, two point three million range. Um, but as far as a, a dollar amount the sky is kind of the limit because uh, at this point uh, there's something called dynamic pricing where uh, pricing kind of behaves the way it does for an airline ticket or Uber surge pricing, where if demand is high, tickets are going to 
react to that and be priced higher. And based on the fact that, you know, there's eight times the amount of people registering for tickets than there are seats available, demand is going to be pretty high and tickets are probably going to uh, definitely going to be higher than last time. Yeah, it, it, it does sound like it. And I suppose, Eric, the, the point in all this really, it, it partly is the strategy, isn't it? I mean, she, she has to have or, or normally would have a single out there, an album out there as ahead of the ahead of the tour. It's kind of the mechanism to get it all churning. Definitely, yeah. She she released Renaissance last year. Uh, it was the first album, solo studio album that she released in six years. It debuted at number one. Its lead single, Break My Soul, went to number one. That was her first solo number one song since Single Ladies in 2008. Uh, and then she got another top 10 hit earlier, uh, just last month, actually, with Cuff It. So the momentum is there. Um, and especially since it's been so long since she's been on the road, you know, fans' appetites are, uh, they're wet. And, and also be pushed, I guess, by the fact that uh, that she's up for uh, at the Grammys. She's, she's allowed to get some awards, isn't she? Definitely. She's the most nominated artist this year. She has nine nominations uh, between R&B categories, dance categories, and then the, the, the big three, album of the year, record of the year, song of the year. Uh, depending on how many awards she does or does not win, she may actually become the most the artist with the most Grammys ever. So it, it'll be a big night for her on Sunday, and then pre-sales begin on Monday. And, I mean, I guess it's hard to make these kind of comparisons, but she must be one of the most uh, successful, financially successful performers on the planet. Yeah, I mean, at least uh, with regard to touring, she's definitely up there. I mean, the, with the money that the Renaissance World Tour makes, her career earnings will pass the $1 billion mark. So... I mean, there's probably, I don't know, 10, maybe a little more, a few more artists who have done that across their career. She'll be one of five women, I believe, to be in that class. It's Madonna and Celine Dion have done it already. And uh, Taylor Swift and Pink will likely do it this year alongside Beyonce. And in terms of, of income, I mean, it, it's the tours that do it. It's not the it's not the albums or, or the release of music, the streaming. It, it, the money side of it is basically in tours. Look, with with the kind of sales and streaming numbers that Beyonce pulls, she's obviously in, a, in an elite class. She's definitely making money off of her albums. But yes, uh, touring is kind of a, an entirely different uh, animal for artists, at least of, of her class. Um, and that's not even to consider the merch that she's selling in advance of these shows and at these shows. Um, you know, talking about $350 million potentially over the course of one summer, uh, you can't really make that just by releasing music. you got to go on the road. And Eric, I've got to ask you, you're going you're gonna to go and see her? You're going to get a ticket? You know what? If I can manage to find a ticket, I will be there, but... Uh, given these projections about how high demand is, I'm I'm nervous, but I'll be trying. Wonder if he will. Eric Frankenberg there of Billboard magazine. Let's leave it to Queen Bay to take it away. Bye bye. When you meet someone online, can you trust they are who they say they are? I keep thinking so much about you. She's so stunning. It's all well planned. Love, Janessa is the true crime podcast from the BBC World Service and CBC Podcasts, investigating the murky world of online romance scams. She was trying to get me to send her money. And it's available now. You win their hearts, you win their wallets. Search for Love, Janessa 
wherever you found this podcast.